You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. And just as a warning, these films might be in theaters now, or they may be from 10, 20, 30 years ago. But regardless, there's a strong possibility that I will be revealing spoilers. I might give away the plot or the ending in this review, so just be warned. The movie is Glory, which came out in 1989. It was directed by Ed Zwick. For the men of the 54th, it was time to make history. Someday they're going to let the 54th get into it. For the sergeant. Time's coming when we're going to have to ante up and kick in like men. It was time to follow his destiny. For a rebellious young soldier. I ain't fighting this war for you, sir. It was time to reach for glory. Denzel Washington, Golden Globe winner. Come on! Morgan Freeman, glory. Rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. It stars Matthew Broderick, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, Andre Brower, Carrie Elways, Jimmy Kennedy, John Finn, and Cliff DeYoung. The genre would be Civil War drama. Spoiler alert. The ending of this film is going to be discussed off the bat. This was probably the first war movie that I ever saw in theaters. At least if we're not counting Rambo 3. <laughs> And as a sheltered suburban 14-year-old, not having seen anything like that final battle for Fort Wagner on the big screen before, I can somewhat remember just feeling broken by the last 40 minutes of this movie. It's a genuine gut punch. And props to director Ed Zwick for seeing it through. I mean, we have already watched several characters we have grown to care about over the previous 80 minutes figuratively fight tooth and nail every step of the way just to get to this point, where they can feel a few fleeting minutes of the titular glory as they march towards that beach of Fort Wagner, only to watch every single one of them, I think, because it's not completely clear, eventually get wiped out by the Confederates through to the end credits. It's unsparing and inspiring at the same time, which feels even strange to even say. On the unsparing side, you could view the direction this film takes towards its conclusion as a very clear-cut anti-war message. Having now recently watched Gallipoli for the first time, it's almost as if you took that tragic sudden ending of that World War I story, but extended it and multiplied it times 100. We are watching most of the 54th Massachusetts Regiment of the Union Army march into almost certain death and we're reminded that the Confederates did win this particular battle, as we see the Confederate flag raised up over the fort the following morning. And then, to close out the movie, we see images of the corpses of many soldiers from the 54th piled into mass graves. Whew, wow. And yet, you could also easily call it inspiring, because it feels as if most of our main characters at least have some agency at least as much as many former slaves could have at the time, faced with mostly shitty choices. Besides the patriotic leanings of some, I'm sure, many wanted to have this opportunity to take the fight directly against the South. And we especially see this set in motion with that quiet side conversation late in the movie between Denzel's private trip and Broderick's Colonel Shaw. Tripp tells Shaw that he just cannot take on this honor of carrying the flag in the next battle. And beyond that, he's not here to fight for the colonel, nor the Union. He's doing it for himself. See, um, 
I ain't fighting this war for you, sir. I see. I mean, what's the point? Stinks, I suppose. Yeah. Stinks bad. And we all covered up in it, too. I mean, ain't nobody clean. Be nice to get clean, though. How do we do that? We ain't help them kick in, sir. And then we see in the very next scene, Shaw volunteers his men to lead that siege on Fort Wagner, which he has already been told is an assignment likely to result in massive casualties. As tragic as the outcome was, it was still a point of pride for the men of the 54th to lead this battle to demonstrate that they could. Now, regardless of how you view that ending, it remains a very powerful conclusion to a very effective movie, which all these decades later, I still find to be highly rewatchable thanks to all the craft that went into it, especially several strong performances from a top-flight cast who bring great dimension to their characters, despite often having to compete for screen time. Yeah, it's actually pretty impressive how many different effective arcs that we see packed into barely two hours of runtime. There's Private Jupiter, the deeply religious and sadly illiterate former slave played with warmth and passion by Jimmy Kennedy. He gives a moving religious speech towards the end around that campfire with the rest of the regiment. He speaks in a broken Southern English, which in the hands of a lesser actor could come off as cartoonish, but he delivers it with dignity. That if I should die at the muzzle of the rifle, die on water or on land, I may know that you, blessed Jesus Almighty, are with me. We see And I have no fear. Amen. I've always wanted to see more from this actor. And I also remember him fondly from the movie Gung Ho just a couple of years prior. There is also multiple Emmy Award winner Andre Brower, who made his big screen debut playing Thomas, the aristocratic Bostonian who was already longtime friends with Broderick Shaw for years before the war. And as we can see towards the beginning of the movie, Thomas is besides himself with excitement to join the Union's first black regiment. Of course, he's in for a rude awakening not only realizing that he has a long way to go towards becoming an effective soldier, but he also gets a small taste of what many Southern blacks at the time were experiencing. Thomas's arc is difficult to watch at times. Robert, Robert. I'd like to speak to you for a moment in private. I've made him. Enlisted men wishing to speak to their commanding officer must first get permission. You understand, Private? Yes, sir. But Brower's subtle, affecting performance makes it worthwhile. He low-key delivers what might be this film's best performance overall. Relax, I said might. And speaking of Denzel, it is almost universally agreed upon that he gives the performance of this movie as the defiant private Trip, a former runaway slave with a justifiably huge chip on his shoulder, who nonetheless has a knack for aggravating most of his fellow soldiers by throwing that anger in every possible direction, especially Brower's Thomas. It's really hard to argue with the common sentiment that Denzel steals this movie as he deservedly won an Oscar for it, and he's the focal point of several scenes which most folks remember from this movie. Hey, come on now. Buck up, boys. 
Hey, buck up now. Come on. See, someday they're gonna let the 54 get into it, see? And all your troubles will be over. Come on now, cheer up. Hey! What'd you say? Boy. Boy. Hey, let me tell Shut you. Shut up, Trim. You get up off me, snowflake. See, let me explain something to you. See, the way I figure, I figure this war would be over a whole lot sooner if you boys just turn right on around and head on back down that way. And you let us head on up there where the real fighting is. Huh? Denzel delivers what, on paper, was likely a very treacherous performance. This character is mostly just an aggressive asshole to everyone around him for most of his screen time. He often makes it hard to see him as sympathetic, which is the general idea. He portrays a very tough shell to crack, doing that with charisma and even some humor along the way. Early on, I always found his crack about running for president to be disarming, as did others in the cast, apparently. But even more disarming and a genuinely powerful moment is at that same campfire sequence late in the movie, watching his trip pretty much besides himself with emotion that he doesn't even have the words to express himself. Come on, man. You doing fine? Well, I just... Um... Y'all's on. Y'all's. Y'all's the only family I got. Well, that's our family. That's all right. And uh, I love the fifty-four. And he shares this moment with Morgan Freeman's Sergeant Major Rawlins, who has strongly encouraged him to speak. And Freeman's performance is very much the heart of this movie. Before enlisting, his character was a gravedigger, and he spends much of the first half of this movie just simply observing others. He's pretty quiet. He's pretty quiet initially, at least. But we watch as he becomes an increasingly outspoken leader for the regiment. And it's during several key sequences in glory that the modern godlike acting persona of Morgan Freeman, at some point in the late 90s, it just felt inevitable that he was going to play God at some point, which he did. It's during these key sequences in glory that this kind of persona is born. And we'll get to one of those key moments a bit later. Carrie Elways also gives a strong performance as the increasingly empathetic Major Forbes, who was also Shaw's friend before the war. He and Matthew Broderick have several good contentious moments together, though probably a few too many at the expense of the African-Americans in the cast. And yes, this has been a common criticism of this film years after its release. That leaves Matthew Broderick, but we'll get to him a bit later. Yes, this story and this film would have been served better if you swapped about 20 minutes of Broderick's screen time with that of Brower, Freeman, Kennedy, and Washington, allowing their characters to be fleshed out a bit more. But I do get why this happened the way it did. Of this film's stars, Broderick was by far the biggest name at the time in 1988. His casting was probably important towards the financing of this movie. If this same film was developed and produced today, I would hope that there would be fairer representation. As it is, this film still very much works from an emotional standpoint. 30 years after first seeing this, Glory still leaves a mark on me. It tells a powerful story about a key part of American history which just had not been told on this scale before. And that brings me to the categories. The first category would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score 
used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Much of the credit for the majesty of glory must also go to the late, great James Horner, composing one of his greatest scores. The themes that we hear throughout are inspiring and iconic, also very much due to amazing contributions from the Harlem Boys Choir, whose vocals soar at just the right moments. My personal highlight of this score is the rousing march which plays just after the halfway point when we see the 54th march for the first time through South Carolina. They're now in the South. They're marching past several plantations in full uniform, proud and in charge. This scene is capped off with a nice moment of a few Southern black kids running up alongside the march and Freeman's Rollins happily shouting to them, Our kingdom come, year of jubilee, as he pumps his fist. The track is fittingly called The Year of Jubilee, and it's punctuated with retro-sounding flutes, meant to sound like they're from the 1800s, and of course that rousing chorus. And that brings me to the next category, which would be wasted talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, with regards to Matthew Broderick, wow. Talk about casting and a performance, which to this day has always been a lightning rod of criticism for this movie. Do I think he was miscast? Well, yes and no. He was the same age as the real Robert Gould Shaw, who was a very wet-behind-the-ears rich kid at the time, who did seem out of his depth at times. Casting Broderick just a couple of years after he played Ferris Bueller, it actually makes a lot of sense on paper. And he has several strong moments towards the end of the film, especially just before that final battle, when we see him staring out at the ocean one last time, almost in tears, knowing the fate that awaits him as James Horner's emotionally charged score starts to swell. The problem is more when he speaks. (laughs) Well, the voiceover narration generally works as he usually conveys the stately tone which would come via letters written home to his mother. And real letters from the real Shaw would actually provide much of the basis for this story. But when we see him dressing others down, it's rough at times. His attempts at a New England accent go in and out. And his appearances as an authority are often upstaged by Elwes, Carrie Elwes, who I actually think would have been a better choice for this role. It's a shame, as you can tell, that Broderick was really going for it at the time trying his best to shake his 80s teeny bopper image in much the same way as Michael J. Fox did earlier this same year when he starred in Brian De Palma's underrated Vietnam drama, Casualties of War. The key difference being that at least Michael J. Fox was allowed to sound like himself at the time. Damn it, you can't. Can't I? I'm a colonel. Nasty little cuss. You really think you can keep 700 Union soldiers without proper shoes because you think it's funny? Now, where would that power come from? And that brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. 
This is such a stacked category, including so many emotional moments, that it's difficult to narrow it down, which I will attempt to do by listing three. The first, of course, it likely goes without saying that Denzel's single-tier stare-down with Broderick as his character Trip is being publicly flogged, being whipped, yeah, in front of the whole regiment, it's one for the ages. Watching him stare back at Broderick as he's being whipped with that one tear coming down from his eye, it's just a moment of pride burned in the brain for anyone who has seen this. It's no wonder that he became a star in the wake of this movie. Now, my second one, my second trailer moment, belongs to Morgan Freeman, though it's actually one that he shares with Denzel. About two-thirds of the way through this movie, we witness a critical moment between two powerhouse actors. And really, in retrospect, it's pretty amazing to see Freeman and Washington face off like this. We see it when his Rollins stops an angry rant from Denzel's trip in its tracks with a loud smack to the face. He smacks him in the face, which is then followed by a fierce monologue punctuated with the loud repeated phrase, like men. Freeman just destroys with the scene. Does the whole world got a stump in your face? Nigga, you better get your hands off me. Ain't no niggas around here, you hear me? Oh, I see. So the white man give you a couple of stripes. Next thing you know, you holler and order and everybody around like you the master himself. Nigga, you ain't nothing but the white man's dog. What are you? So full of hate, you just want to go out and fight everybody. Because you've been whipped and chased by hounds. Well, that might not be living, but it sure as hell ain't dying. And dying's what these white boys been doing for going on three years now. Dying by the thousands. Dying for you, fool. I know, because I dug the graves. And all the time I'm digging, I'm asking myself when, when, oh Lord, is going to be our time. Well, time's coming when we're going to have to ante up. Ante up and kick in like men. Like men! And I know that this might be unusual, but my favorite moment in the film actually occurs very late in the movie, when we see Browers Thomas let out a piercing battle cry as he waves his bayonet in the air before helping to lead that final charge into Fort Wagner. It's about as gratifying a moment of witnessing someone just unleash his inner warrior as I can recall. And that brings us to the final category, which would be the MVP, this is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Now, while you could easily make the case that this is Denzel's movie at the end of the day, I'm going to spread the wealth a bit. This movie simply does not work without a trio of truly great performances from actors playing characters with three distinct points of view. And those characters would be Tripp, Rollins, and Thomas. It's essential to see how these three play off of each other to get a better understanding of the black experience at this particular time in history. And for that reason, Denzel Washington, Morgan Freeman, and Andre Brower are co-MVPs. My rating for Glory would be four and a half stars out of five. At the end of the day, this is still a great movie. Even though you can make a solid case that this movie could not have been made on this scale without Matthew Broderick, that part of the movie is always going to nag at me just a little bit. 
But Glory remains a movie worthy of multiple watches, not only because of its historical significance, but the sheer brilliance of most of its storytelling. If you are looking to watch Glory, it is currently streaming on Hulu, Paramount Plus, and Epics. And that ends another valorous review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.